Hallelujah. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19 this morning. I want to start a new series on the book of uh, Ephesians. And um, before we get into the the letter itself, we want to kind of set it up, introduce it, and explain uh, the purpose for the letter and, and some of the background information concerning it. So Acts chapter 19 tells us about Paul's first uh, um, visit and ministry experience in the, uh, the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a seaport city. It was a, uh, a major, uh, well, it was a major city of the day. It would have been the Los Angeles or the New York City of its day. Um, it was um, uh, very much a trade city because it was a seaport located on the, the sea. And uh, uh, as a result, there was a lot of uh, different types of doctrines, philosophies, religions, uh, beliefs and so forth. People traveled by land and by sea to get to and and to pass through the city. And uh, it's it's not surprising that it would be a place where uh, God would send Paul as a as a major city to start a church and to do a work there. But you also have to realize that it would be because of all the things that are going on uh, there in the city and the different diversions and so forth. It'd be one of the hardest places to start a church because there are so many distractions. I've got friends in, um, that pastor in the Midwest, and the, the options for, um, uh, for the people there is to work in the field or go to church. And so they have great church attendance. And uh, it's a little different when you get to bigger cities and, and uh, more densely populated areas and so forth. Well, that was the situation where Ephesus was concerned. So we'll start in Acts chapter 19, verse 1. I won't read through the whole chapter, but we'll read down through verse 20. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. doesn't say how he found them, but he found some. He said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Now let me stop right there, and I'll, I'll take some time this morning. I'm not going to try to get through but maybe a couple of verses of the book of Ephesus, uh, of, of the book of Ephesians this morning. So, uh, so I want to take some time and... And, uh, and just break some of these things down. Notice that one of the first things that the Bible identifies in Paul's visit to Ephesus is that he saw a difference in salvation and being baptized in the Holy Ghost. Paul's first question to people that he assumes are believers, now he finds out that they're not saved, but they're living a life that it would indicate that they are. And so he asked them, assuming that they're Christians, he asked them, have you received the Holy Ghost? Well, he can't be talking about salvation because he said, since you believed. So what Holy Ghost is he talking about? He's talking about the Acts 2 experience where they were all filled with the Spirit of God and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Paul asked them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Two different experiences, salvation and being filled with the Holy Ghost. And they said, uh, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Well, he knows right away they're not saved. Because who, be, who could possibly be saved without hearing about the Holy Ghost? The Holy Ghost is the one that does the work in salvation. So then he asked them, under what then were you baptized? And they said, under John's baptism. Talking about John the Baptist. So he said, then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, the part that's left out here is that he said, 
Well, John spoke of Jesus coming, but Jesus has come and gone. So when they heard that, they gladly received it and were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came upon them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Now, please notice verse 5 tells us when they were saved. They received the word about Jesus, were baptized in the name of Jesus. That's salvation. It's not talking about water baptism, although they may have been baptized in water. But Paul didn't put too much of an emphasis on that. Paul wrote to the letter, his letters to the church. He indicates that in most cases, most places that he went to, he didn't baptize anybody in water at all. He left that to other people to do. So the baptism here that's being spoken of is probably salvation and not water baptism. We know it includes salvation. We just don't know if water baptism was attached to it at that point in time. So verse 5, they're saved. Verse 6, they get filled with the Holy Spirit. Two separate experiences. I wish the church would get that. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's not for everybody or that's not for today. Didn't Jesus say the Holy Ghost would abide with you forever? Well, then how can anything that Jesus said the Holy Ghost would do not abide or not continue forever? You got a lot of people in the church say, well, God doesn't work the same way as he used to. Well, when did he change? And if he changed, we need to let him know because he doesn't know that he has. Because he said very specifically, I'm the Lord, I change not. So you can believe it any way you want to, but this is the way the Bible says it. When Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came upon them, and how do we know they were filled? And they spake with tongues and prophesied. Now, folks, this is 20 years after the Acts 2 experience. And the, the experience of being filled with the Holy Ghost has the same evidence 20 years later that it had in Acts chapter 2 when it first began, and that was they spake with tongues as the Holy Ghost gave them utterance. And all the men were about 12. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly under the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, that's always going to be the case, not everybody's going to believe, doesn't change the truth, but not everybody chooses to believe it. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separating the disciples disputed daily in the school of one Tyrannus. Now, why did he separate the disciples? Because, folks, you hang around people that don't believe like you do and their unbelief will rub off on you. Faith comes by hearing. So does unbelief. And this continued by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, let me read that again in verse 10. Paul says in, or it says of Paul in verse 9 that he separated the disciples. In other words, he told them, keep this in mind, he told them, you need to not associate or disassociate yourself with people that won't believe the truth. That doesn't mean you can't minister to them. That doesn't mean you can't be acquaintances with them. But it does mean you can't join yourself to them. I wish Christians had that much sense today. A lot of Christians lose their testimony and in many cases their faith is hindered, diminished because of the friends or the associates that, you, that they choose. What's the old saying? Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. That's still true today. Now notice what happens when he separates the believers 
and teaches them, continues to teach them and put the right things into them. It says that not only does this church begin to grow and begin to flourish, but also it becomes a ministry headquarters. Notice it says in verse 10, This continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia, not in Ephesus, Ephesus is one of the chief cities in Asia, but not all those that dwell in Ephesus, all those that dwelt in Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now what churches were in Asia? Well, you remember in the book of Revelation? Jesus appears to John on the Isle of Patmos and tells us some things about the end, but before that he gives him a message for seven churches. Those are seven churches in Asia. I don't know if I can name them all, but the first one is Ephesus, Sardis, Pergamos, Thyatira, Laodicea, and a couple others. Philadelphia. Philadelphia is one of them I left out. Smyrna. Everybody give my wife a hand, would you please? She'll brag about that for years. Let me ask you a question. Which of those cities do we have record in the book of Acts that Paul ever went to? Ephesus is the only one on the list. How did these churches get started? Well, we've got historical documents that tell us specifically for a couple, but, uh, but give us a pretty good indication for some of the others that it was Paul's ministry team, specifically one man named Epaphras, that was instrumental in the starting of several of these churches, maybe all of them. But the Bible's telling us that Paul established in a two-year two and three-month period Paul established a ministry headquarters that reached a continent. Tell me that's not the work of God. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. So that by or from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons. And the diseases departed from them and the evil spirits went out of them. Now this, um, uh, this is not the way that most of us think of laying hands on handkerchiefs and taking them to people and stuff like this these uh, these words that are translated handkerchiefs and aprons are work clothes paul's working he's making tents and somehow or another and and there's some indication we don't know for sure but there's some indication that it happened without anybody's knowledge how would anybody know to lay hands on a handkerchief and take it to a sick person the closest thing that we've got to 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 any uh any similar event was when people would come and touch Jesus' garment. But there's no indication that, that Jesus ever said that your garments will carry the power of God like mine, or that you'll lay hands on cloth or handkerchiefs and take them to the sick person and, sick, and sickness will depart. There's no indication of that whatsoever. Now, Jesus did say the same works that I did, you'll do also. And even greater works than these shall you do. But tradition, and this is tradition, it's not history, we don't know this for sure. But tradition tells us that Paul's um, work apron as a tent maker was somehow touched by somebody that had a sickness or a disease and it left them. And so from that point, everybody started trying to get everything they could that Paul had touched or sweat on. And we think of real, you know, sanitary conditions where you bring up a nice brand new handkerchief and lay hands on it and things like that and thank God that works 
But this, again, the tradition tells us that it was, these were things that Paul had sweat on. There was something of him that went into the, these uh, handkerchiefs or aprons, whatever they might have been. Well, once that started happening, everybody realized not only the power of the man that's speaking to them, but the word that he's speaking being the truth. So God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. So that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over him, over them, excuse me, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Folks, that will tell you everything you need to know about dealing with the devil. Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I wonder if that got around town. And this was known to all the Jews and the Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now, that would be a great end of the story right there, but that's not the end of the story. Notice what happens next. It says, and many that believed. What is he talking about? Many that believed. He's talking about people that are already in the church. This may include people that that, uh, had not chosen to believe in Jesus, but this event with the uh, evil spirit jumping on this man and what he said that we just read before may have pushed them over the edge. But it's also talking about people in the church. Many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts. That means occult practices and ritualistic stuff. Brought their books together and burned them before all the men and counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. I've got a question to ask you. What are church people doing with occult stuff anyway? Do you remember back over in verse 9 where it says that when divers hardened themselves or were hardened and believed not but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he, Paul, departed from them and separated the disciples? What's he doing? He's trying to get them away from the world. Well, even though he was able to separate them from people of the world that refused to believe, he didn't get the world out of them. That's something only you can do for yourself. And it took this special event, it took this miraculous occurrence to cause people, please listen to what I'm saying, to place Christianity, to place their relationship with Jesus in the priority that it was supposed to hold all the time. The place of importance of their relationship with Jesus was gained only after this miraculous occurrence where these seven guys tried to cast the devil out of somebody using a name that they did not have a relationship with. Now, the Bible tells us that's not the end of Paul's time in in, uh, Ephesus. And and this doesn't cover the whole of the time that he was there in Ephesus. Most uh, Bible scholars agree that Paul was there anywhere from three years to three and a half years where some of these other events took place during the time where some of these other events took place. Uh, It tells about a riot and things that took place after that. We won't go into the detail and read that. But uh, with that in mind, I want you to turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1 now. 
Here's the background for Paul's time in Ephesus, the only time that we know of that he was in Ephesus. Now, not too long afterwards, after he leaves, he comes back through there and comes to a a close proximity to town, and he sends for the elders of the church at Ephesus, those that he left in charge after after he departed the city. And he shared some things with them, but we don't have any record that he ever went back to the city of Ephesus. We don't have any record in, uh, in any kind of documentation whatsoever, certainly not the book of Acts, that Paul was ever in Ephesus any other time except that one period for anywhere from two and a half to three and a half years. Now, the book that he writes, the letter that he writes, Paul identifies was written when he was a prisoner. He mentions three times in the book of Ephesians that he was a prisoner. Well, there's only two times that we have record of that Paul was a prisoner. One's in Acts chapter 24 and the other's in Acts chapter 28. Now, both of those were two-year periods. So the question is, during which of those two-year periods was he, uh, did he author the book of Ephesians? Well, with the things that are taking place and the fact that we know uh, the chronology or the, uh, the date of the writing of some of the other letters, I choose to believe that it was during his last imprisonment. Now, what... Uh, occasioned this letter being written the book of Ephesians is different than any other letter that Paul ever wrote every other letter he wrote to the church is to address an issue or a problem that's taking taking place or going on in that church the book of Ephesians doesn't address any problem it's a letter whose theme is the church and there's no problem that he addresses but if you read the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians you'll see they're parallel letters They talk about virtually the same thing in almost the same order. So since the book of Colossians was written, the letter to the Colossian church was written to address a problem, why is there the difference? Well, let's start with Colossians. Paul says that Epaphras brought him news of the Colossian church. This is Epaphras that was one of the ministry team, maybe the leader of the ministry team that went and helped start some of the churches in Asia. And uh, Epaphras, apparently, brings Paul word of a new doctrine that's come in and is attempting to destroy the church. Now, we don't have any, uh, any record that Paul was in Colossae either. We're, we do have historical documents that indicate that Epaphras was one of the, the uh, main founders of that church. Pretty solid documents on that, in that case. And Epaphras was from Colossae, the city of Colossae. So he went back home and started a church. Well, who is Epaphras? We don't know. There's no mention made of him other than, than, well, there's three times he's mentioned, two times in the book of Colossians, one time in the book of Philemon, the letter he wrote to Philemon. But other than, than just Paul saying he's one of our fellow servants, that's all we know. But here's a guy who's barely mentioned that we have historical documents that indicate he started churches, some of the main churches that are referenced in the, in the New Testament. Well, apparently, Epaphras brings back word, at least according to what Paul said, he brings back word of the state of the church in Colossae. And he lets him know about some doctrine that is, has crept into the church that uh, the devil is trying, using to try to destroy the church. Now, this doctrine is a, a combination of Judaism and paganism that emphasizes to a great degree angels and demons. And that's why Paul writes about the the hierarchy or the structure of evil spirits and about Jesus' lordship over them. 
The whole purpose is for the Colossian church that he's trying to dispel this notion that there are evil unseen spirits that that the church needs to pay homage to in some way or another, which is what this doctrine was um, suggesting or teaching that they should do. Now, let's stop here for a minute and talk a little bit more. What was Paul's main message? Salvation by grace. What was Paul's doctrinal position in every other letter that he wrote, except the Colossians and the Ephesians, in every other letter that he wrote to the church, what was his position, his doctrinal position or emphasis? Well, salvation by faith. Not by works, but by faith. Because Judaism was the one thing that he was combating. Now, folks, you need to realize Judaism, Jew and Gentile, the Jew and Gentile situation in, in, uh, in Paul's day is something that most of us can't really relate to. So let's put it in terms that we can relate to. Let's consider that the Gentile situation would be like the Iranians and the Jewish situation would be like, the, like Israel today. Can you imagine under any circumstance where the nation of Israel and the nation of Iran would come together and be friends? That's what Paul is teaching that has happened through the blood of Jesus. Now, the Jews didn't just start being persecuted in World War II. We know of the Holocaust. Some of us do anyway. If you're over 50, maybe you know a little bit of it. I don't know that they're teaching anything about it to the young people. But we think of things concerning the Jewish people and the, the tragedy. The, was it six million Jews that were killed during the Holocaust? Six or seven, I'm not sure what the number is. But anyway, it was a lot of people. And we think of it because we have some kind of historical context to that. But the Jews have been persecuted from the beginning of time, or beginning of the Jewish race. And because they've been uh, persecuted, because they've been um, run out of country after country after country, it was a way of life for them once they rebelled against God and and, uh, the, the curse of disobedience came upon them. Because of that, they had enemies all over the world. And so they recognized, and that for, that's one of the reasons why the Jews kind of went underground as far as being Jews in many countries and in many situations, many periods of time, because they knew that they were hated as a people. Well, Paul is coming along and he's saying that the blood of Jesus has made us equal. Jew and, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek are, are one and the same by the blood of Jesus. Well, if you're a Jew... Uh, of the nation of Israel, physical descendant of the nation of Israel, and you know that everybody has been your enemy, now all of a sudden you're supposed to forget that and be friends with everybody, it was tough for the Jews. Now, not impossible. Paul had to do it. And it, and it was something that was certainly attainable. But you could see it was culturally opposite to everything that they had experienced. Well, as a result, the Jews fought against Paul's ministry tooth and nail. They did everything they could to try to destroy Paul's ministry. When they found out they couldn't uproot it all together, they said, well, okay, this Jesus guy, he's okay, but you've got to follow the law of Moses too. That progressed in Colossae, apparently, to something where not only was the church being commanded to follow the law of Moses along with their Christian beliefs, but also to pay homage to these evil spirits who are still operating in the world. Now, one of the great dilemmas in the body of Christ today is if God is in control, if God is all-powerful, then why do the bad things happen in the earth that happen? Well, you'd have to be kind of stupid not to realize that there are evil forces operating in the world. 
which, under, which explains why our political leaders have no clue. Let's have a nuclear deal with Iran. I'm sure they'll follow the rules. How dumb can you get? Well, the thing that, that's behind and, and motivates some of that is the failure to recognize evil in the world, the place of evil in the world. There's real evil out there, folks. And it's raising its head and it's growing stronger and stronger and stronger the further we go. There is real evil out there. Well, as a result, this, paganism, this mix of paganism and Judaism came into Colossae and say, well, everybody can see there's evil in the world. And so we as, as members of this human race are going to have to do something to appease those evil spirits. Because they, and, and you can readily see that the, the basic foundational um, point behind all of that is that Jesus is not enough. The name of Jesus is not all-powerful. And Jesus is not the head or the Lord of all things. Now, Paul told the Romans that, that, that there's one Lord, one baptism, one faith, and so forth. He has hinted at the fact that Jesus is over all. But only in the letters to the Colossians and the Ephesians does he talk about Jesus being the Lord of principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. That's what these letters are for, specifically the Colossian letter. It's to straighten the church out and say, wait a minute, Jesus is the head of the church and he's the head of all things he's the creator nowhere except in the book of Colossians and Ephesians is the the uh, incidents or the the progression of creation identified as Jesus being the creator well how then are we supposed to view things both to the Colossians and the Ephesians Paul writes that these evil spirits are below Jesus because number one he's the one that created them that rebelled against God and number two, God's plan of redemption was to consummate or consolidate all power in heaven and earth eventually under the lordship of Jesus. So that's what these letters are about. That's what these letters um, came about as a result, especially the Colossian letter. Now, the Ephesian letter is a little bit different because Paul is writing to Colossians to straighten things out, but it's almost as if, and, it, and again, if this is during Paul's second imprisonment we don't know how much longer he lives after this letter we know that this is the last letter that he writes to the churches or we we i say we know if you if you accept that he wrote it during his second imprisonment in acts chapter 28 then that would make sense or that would fit the chronology we do know that he wrote a couple of pastoral letters to individuals timothy and and um, uh, titus at the end of his life but that this is the last letter that he writes to the church. Well, why does he write this letter to the Ephesians if he's already dealt with the situation and covered the issue in the Colossians, the letter that he wrote to the Colossians? Well, apparently Paul expands on it even further. Now, there's very little dispute or argument about who wrote the letter, but the letter to the Ephesians is a different style than anything else that Paul ever wrote. Because Paul is always, to the Romans, to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, so forth, he's always hammering on the fact that Jesus has redeemed us, that it's the works, the works of the law profit nothing, it's only by grace and through faith are you saved and so forth. There's none of that in the Ephesian letter. I mean, it's, the doctrine is there, the truth is there, but it's not this point by point by point lawyer defeating the opposition's points that Paul wrote, the style that he wrote in the other letters. Why not? Because Paul seems to have expanded on the idea or the, the, uh, uh, the truth 
that he wrote to the Colossians and leaves one final letter for all of the churches. Now, have you found Ephesians chapter 1 yet? Dear Lord, if you haven't, just look on with your neighbor. <laughs> Give up. Ephesians chapter 1. Notice in, uh, I'm going to read the first, uh, first verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. That would seem to indicate to us that we know who wrote it and who he wrote it to. The problem is the two words at Ephesus are not in the original transcripts. The oldest manuscripts do not have the words at Ephesus. Well, how do we know then that it was supposed to be for the Ephesians? Because the theme of the letter that we call the Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, is the, the theme is the church, meaning that this applies to any and every church. Apparently, Paul wrote this, and the, the style of the, the Greek language in the first verse wouldn't make sense if you don't have somebody that it's written to. For example, what I mean by that is the oldest manuscripts leave out the two words at Ephesus. The most trusted manuscripts don't have the two words at Ephesus, which means Paul left a blank there according to the grammar and the, the text that he used. He left a blank there for every church to be able to plug in their own name. And apparently this letter was supposed to be sent to, carried by Tychicus, just like the Colossian letter was, to the other churches in Asia, probably specifically the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation and maybe some others as well. But because otherwise it doesn't make sense. It would say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, are those two different groups? They can be, I guess. But the structure, the sentence structure doesn't make sense if he's talking about two different people. He's talking about the saints at Ephesus who are faithful in Jesus. That's what, he's, that's what he means. But if you leave out the destination for the letter, the grammar doesn't make sense. So this is a letter that belongs to all the churches. We've titled it to the Ephesians, but it belongs to the church in Foothill Ranch. And the theme, uh, the whole purpose of, the, of this book, this letter, is not to correct a problem. Because different churches would have different problems but it's to tell the position that the church has because Jesus has been raised to the right hand of the Father. Now, you know as well as I do, we just finished a series on Romans not too long ago. And Paul takes almost what was divided into almost a whole chapter saying, say hello to this one, say hello to that one, say hello to this one, greet this one in my name, and so forth. If Paul spent more time in Ephesus, and that was to a church that he'd never even, a place, a city that he'd never even been to. Paul had never even visited the churches at Rome. But he had a whole list, laundry list of people that he was saying, say hello to for me. There's not one greeting or salutation to the Ephesians, even though he spent anywhere from two and a half to three and a half years in that city. Would that make sense? He's going to be leaving out a lot of people, isn't he? Again, it's because this letter was written to be circulated among a number of churches. Now, the first thing Paul identifies is that, his, that he is an apostle. Paul an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God, by the will of God. Now, Paul identifies himself. This is not an unusual greeting. This is not an unusual way for him to, to introduce himself to the churches. He did pretty much the same thing to the Corinthians and, and, uh, and others. But Paul is asserting his apostleship, but he's telling us something about the office of the apostle. For example, who do we think of when we think of the apostles? We think of Jesus' twelve. 
Well, then we know that Judas betrayed Jesus, and so he lost his place. And then we also know that in Acts chapter 1, it tells us that Peter, in uh, an attempt to fulfill the, the Scriptures, had the other people choose, along with himself, somebody to take Judas's place. Now, how in the world is an apostle chosen by men drawing lots? Secondly, when were the apostles chosen to be apostles? One of the things that Paul addresses in this letter in Ephesians chapter 4 is that it was only after Jesus was raised to be seated at the right hand of God that he gave gifts unto men. And he identifies them, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. There's some discrepancy or some discussion about pastors and teachers, whether those are separate offices or one office together. There seems to be a connection between pastoring and teaching that Paul was trying to to identify by the Holy Ghost because he made up a new word. This literally is not pastors and teachers. It's pastor-teacher. One, Two words joined together in a way that we don't have any record of that was ever done before. So whether there are four offices or five offices, four ministry gifts or five ministry gifts, you decide for yourself. But there is certainly a joining together, a supernatural joining together between, or intended to be, joining together the pastor and the teacher. But Paul says that those gifts were only given after he was raised from the, to the right hand of the Father. That means that the, that the apostles, well, the ones that we know of as the apostles, operated in a different way after Jesus was raised from the dead than they did when he was here on the earth. In other words, Jesus couldn't have called them to be apostles before he was killed. Now, he might have shared with them some of his plan. At the Last Supper, he showed, told them some things about the works that I do show you do also, but he hadn't called them yet. If Paul is accurate in telling the truth by the Holy Ghost, Jesus couldn't give those gifts until after he was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, when did that happen? After he was raised from the dead. The Great Commission is him calling them to be apostles. Now, when Paul says, I'm called to be an apostle by the will of God, not the will of man, he's saying nobody and no group, Peter, none of the apostles, none of the other groups at, uh, at Jerusalem or anywhere else, decided that I was or wasn't one. It's chosen by God and him alone. Now, in Acts chapter 13, it tells us when Paul's ministry or calling to, as an apostle was confirmed. Let me turn back there and read it. You can turn it if you want to. Don't have to. It's up to you. But in Acts chapter 13, it says that there was at the church at Antioch certain uh, apostle or certain prophets and teachers and names five guys. Let me get it. Verse 1, Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaean which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Now the only ones that we know anything about to my knowledge are Barnabas and Saul. But the other three are in the same positions as Paul and Barnabas. Now where it says there were certain prophets and teachers that means one of two things. It means they were either a prophet or they were a teacher, or I guess the third option was they could be a prophet and a teacher. We don't know who's who. But it says that as they were gathered together, verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have, past tense, not am calling them, have called them, have called them, the work whereunto I have called them. In other words, 
they've been called to be apostles before this point in time. Now, here's a question I've got for you. How did the Holy Ghost say it? Was there a booming voice from heaven? Well, if there was, it seems to me that, the, that Luke did us a disservice by not telling us that's the way it happened. Because what a magnificent way it would, there would be in that sense or in that event to be called of God. Who could question that kind of calling? That only happened when the voice from heaven spoke about Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, if it didn't happen that way, how did it happen? Well, he must have spoken through one of the prophets that were there. Wouldn't you think? I mean, that's what a prophet does, isn't it? He speaks for God. So they're ministering the Lord and fasted. The Holy Ghost seems to come upon one of these prophets, and the prophet says, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I've called them. I would submit to you that it's a probability that it wasn't Barnabas or Saul that said it. If it had been Saul, or if it had been Paul, he would have said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, separate Barnabas and me for the work that I've called them. So it's got to be one of the other guys. So here's the confirmation of a call that's taken place before upon them. Now, have they talked about it? Have they discussed it? Did Paul walk up to Barnabas one day? I mean, they were friends. Barnabas is the one that got him out of Jerusalem before to keep him from being killed. He's the one that brought him to to the other apostles in Jerusalem. And testified about the grace of God that was upon him and so forth. Paul's uh, conversion experience must have been well known. Not too many got, people got saved by a light shining from heaven and a voice. Being spoken. Falling off the animal they're riding. I, mean, I didn't get saved that way, did you? We don't have record that anybody else did either. So that must have been widely known. It probably followed, followed Paul wherever the church went. Wherever Christianity was preached, this legend of Paul's conversion, I would imagine, would be something that would be spoken of and told from city to city. Paul was a famous guy before he ever did anything. He was famous, first of all, for killing killing Christians, imprisoning Christians, and then he was famous for having gotten saved. And you can well understand why God would need to do something like that if he's going to send one of the greatest uh, church executioners out to be one of his servants. He's going to need some kind of credibility. You could well imagine that Paul wouldn't have too much success if he went to a new town, put an ad in the newspaper and said, I'm the guy that killed Christians in the last city I went to and I'm starting a church here. I doubt if I'd make that first meeting. What about you? So it would be necessary for God to do something in such a spectacular way as he did, so that Paul's conversion experience would be known. But now Paul is saying, I'm an apostle not because Peter said I am. I'm not an apostle because my mama wants me to be. I'm an apostle because Jesus called me. Now what's an apostle? An apostle, the word apostle means sent one. Now how can somebody be sent? In one sense, everybody's sent. I mean, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Doesn't that belong to everybody? Isn't that great commission belong to everybody? But you may be sent somewhere differently than where I'm sent. How is it that some people are apostles as specific or special sent ones? Well, there's only two ways I know of that a person can be sent. One is to be sent to a certain people or place or location. 
Another is to be sent with a certain message. I think some people are apostles just by virtue of the message that they've been given to minister. Now, they may minister that message in a variety of places, a number of different cities, maybe even different countries. But I think it's their message that makes them a sent one. Smith Wigglesworth was called an apostle of faith. I think that fits because there was something special. In my opinion, it was specifically the gift of faith or special faith that was manifest in him and through him that caused people worldwide, wherever he went. He made a couple of trips to the United States before his death in 1947, I believe it was. He made a couple of trips to the United States. Most of his ministry was in England and in Europe, some in Europe. But everywhere he went, he inspired people to believe. How did he do that? Because he was specifically sent with power to show that the word of God was true. He'd go in places and laugh when he'd meet resistance, resistance from the people. He'd get into a crowd, there'd be intellectuals there and stuff like that, and everybody's sitting there with their hands folded and arms crossed, looking at him, waiting to see what he's going to do. And he'd laugh and he'd say, you folks don't think God's not going to honor his word here, do you? And then he'd perform some kind of miracle by the gift of faith. Well, he was an apostle, a sent one with a specific message. Other people are sent, but to a specific place. Missionaries would have to fall into the category of apostles. If somebody is sent to another country, sent to France, sent to Haiti, sent to Germany or whatever is a missionary, they would have to be sent ones, specific sent ones. Now, some people are sent and other people just go. But sent ones are those that are called with a specific purpose, either for a specific people or a specific place, or they have a specific message. One of the things that has always interested me about this, Paul talking about his own uh, uh, position in office as an apostle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, he's talking about himself. And, and remember, the Corinthian church had a great deal of resistance, even though Paul had given probably more of himself to them than anybody else. Made more trips through Corinth, expended more time overall in the city of Corinth than any other thing, any other place. Uh, they got taken up with other people. They started comparing ministry with uh, one ministry with another ministry, and and uh, tr- uh, church tradition tells us, based on some kind of historical documents, some historical documents that we have, um, Paul was not a great speaker. He was a short guy from the descriptions that we have in, in historical documents. He was a short guy. He was bald, obstinate. He had argued with a signpost. I take great comfort in Paul's personality, folks, i got to tell you. <laughs> and he was not a good speaker. He, he wasn't eloquent in his speech. He sometimes had trouble gathering his thoughts together, but boy, could he write. And so as a result, some people, like Apollos, who are much more eloquent, the Bible tells us, in, in their speech and in their manner, some of the, the churches, specifically the Corinthian church, took Apollos and said, well, he's the guy we like to listen to. We don't want to listen to that Paul guy anymore. But Apollos didn't know Paul's revelation, at least not to the degree that he did. And as a result, Paul is trying to assert himself as, as their father in the faith. And he says uh, things like, look, there's nobody that's done more for the things of God, for the kingdom of God. Nobody's suffered more for the kingdom of God than I have. Nobody's been in prison more than I have. Nobody's been beaten more for the gospel than I have. 
Why won't you folks listen to me? And then one of the things he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, he talks about the signs of an apostle. He says, truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. And then he talks about through mighty signs and deeds and wonders, talking about miracles and signs and wonders and so forth. But the first thing that he mentions, the first characteristic he mentions of the apostles' ministry is patience. He said, truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you with all patience through mighty signs and wonders. Signs is the word miracle. Through miracles and wonders. Why does he put patience in there? Folks, some, uh, one aspect of the apostles' ministry is that he outlasts the devil. He outlasts the devil. I, we've told this story before, and, and I'm, I'm not making a comparison as far as apostleship is concerned. But uh, when we were running through uh, some of the trouble we had, right at the tail end of the, the uh, building trouble we had and the contractors and lawsuits and all that mess that uh, I, I hate to even try to think about and remember. But uh, we got right at the end of the, of the road and we were trying to gather all of the, the information together because we had one final lawsuit that we were bringing against the contractors. And um, so the, the lawyer uh, that we were using said, well, we need to, to get all of our experts together and let them tell us, you know, how things are as far as from their point of view and, and so forth. So we had a conference call and had, I don't know, eight or ten people on there. We had church growth experts. We had construction experts. We had legal experts. We had finance experts. We had every expert that you could figure out that had anything to do with church building or church growth or, or whatever. And uh, uh, so I'm sitting in the lawyer's office, and it's on speakerphone. And so the, the lawyer explained, here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like each one of you to take just a moment or two and Give us a summary of how you see this and what you think we need to do and how we need to approach this and so forth. Well, the first guy started up and he said, uh, uh, he was the, the uh, construction expert guy. And he said, well, first thing I'd like to say, and none of these people had identified themselves as Christians. I, I don't know what their, their uh, position was on Christianity or whatever. But the first guy started off and said, well, before I get started, I'd like to say, Pastor Webb, I think it's a miracle that your church is alive. And then one after the other, after, you know, he gave his summary, and then the next one came on, and he said, well, I'd like to echo what so-and-so said. I've, I've been in business and so, you know, this kind of business for so, so many years, and, and I've never seen a church withstand what your church has done. I think it's a miracle that your church is alive. Well, after about the fifth or the sixth one, I noticed what they were saying. And I'm sitting there, and I'm dumbfounded hearing them say that the thing that proved to them that God was with us was that we had lasted through the attacks of the enemy. See, we all want the instant results. We all, we all want God to flash lightning and, you know, roll thunder and then a voice from heaven saying, I'm with him. He's my guy. We all want to strike our hand over the... the, the place where the sick are and and have them raised instantly and stuff like that that's the way we think of things but a lot of times the world is is affected more by the long-term evidence of the blessings of god than anything else paul says that about the apostles ministry he said true the, all the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience why all patience I mean, he did have signs and mighty signs and wonders. He did have miracles. 
We've got record of some of them in the book of Acts. Why does he mention patience? Because it's not an instant work. See, the signs of an apostle are not the same signs of an, as an evangelist. Acts chapter 8 tells us about how Philip the evangelist went down to Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And everybody in the city gave heed to what he said, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. He goes to town and has miracles instantly. Paul didn't. Different offices, different gifts. But see, we get so conditioned to instant results. I mean, we get frustrated when we have to wait for the popcorn to pop for two minutes in the microwave. I mean, we're tapping our foot at a minute 54. We're so used to instant results. Everything about our society, everything about our lifestyle is so geared toward instant results. God doesn't always move instantly. And we've conditioned ourselves to where if it's not an instant result, it must not be God. And nothing could be further from the truth. God's going to be here after your deadline is long past. And he's still going to be good. His word's still going to be true. It's always interested me that Paul put patience first. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience. In all patience through mighty signs and wonders. We, we looked over in Acts chapter 19. Paul didn't have anything to do, at least to his knowledge, if the, if the historical evidence is true. Paul had no knowledge that the first great miracle even took place. Somebody took his apron or contacted some sick person came in contact with his apron and got healed. Well, Paul can take credit for that, can he? Yeah, that was my sweat in that apron. Nobody else's sweat would have done that. How does he know? He couldn't even take credit for it. It wasn't even something that he walked up to the sick and healed them. Now, there were cases and, and incidents we have in the book of Acts where it did work that way, but not there, not in Ephesus. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience. In all patience. In all patience. Patience has a great deal to do with your walk with God, folks. The Bible says through faith and patience we inherit the promises. Now if faith and impatience were the key, we'd get a lot more results, wouldn't we? But it's faith and patience. James said, let patience have her perfect work. That you may be perfect and entire. Now, I don't know any other way to relate to patience other than time. Now, patience itself is not just time. A lot of people pass time and, and never develop patience. But you can't develop patience without time. And the indication is the right spiritual attitude, the right attitude of heart... The right belief in the word of God maintained in a steadfast manner will cause it to work every time. That means anybody. Think about what that means. That means anybody that has reached out in faith and failed to receive gave up. But isn't that what God gets blamed for? Well, I tried that faith stuff and it didn't work. Well, that's the problem. You tried it and then gave up. Because the Bible says faith and patience will cause you an inheritance. The Bible says faith and patience will, will bring in the result every time. 
wonder how many people have given up just right before the answer came. That's always freaked me out. When I get to the place where I want to give up, where my flesh says, just quit, just give up, I think I can't give up. Tomorrow might be the day. Then tomorrow comes and it's not the day and then I'm tempted to give up again. Well, I can't quit now. I'm one day closer. It might be tomorrow. Paul developed some kind of patience. He realized things didn't work as fast as he wanted to. Paul says in one place, I'll finish with this. Didn't get quite as far as what I wanted to, but that's all right. We've got until Jesus comes back. And I don't mind taking a series that long. It doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> Paul wrote to, uh, to Timothy about a certain man named Alexander. He said, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much wrong. But I've turned him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that he might learn not to blaspheme. Then in the second letter that he writes to Timothy, he said, watch out for Alexander. He's caused me much harm. What does that mean? That means God doesn't kill people nearly as quick as we want him to sometimes. I mean, Paul's first letter, he handles it like, that's it. That's guy, that guy's out of here. Look for the news of him getting struck by lightning. Second letter, he says, now, watch out for Alexander. Now, I don't know what happened to him. I'm sure it didn't go well with him if he withstood the things of God. But even Paul figured out things didn't work as quick as we want them to sometimes. Does that change God? Not one bit. To change the word, not one bit. Might change our thinking and should, but God's word is true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never fail. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never fail. Well, I'm going to teach the book of Ephesians when we get around to it. <laughs> Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the privilege that we have to be doers thereof. Lord, we thank you for teaching us who we are, especially in these last days, Father, in the place that the church holds because Jesus is risen and seated at your right hand. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for instructing us. We thank you for helping us by the presence of the Holy Ghost and the Spirit of God within us to stand in the place that Jesus died for us to be. We're not satisfied being nominal Christians. We're not satisfied being baby Christians. But we desire to mature in the things of God. We desire to stand in a place of righteousness. To see ourselves as you see us, Father. To live our lives in such a way that the world sees Jesus through us. Father, we thank you for teaching us the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. The power in that wonderful, mighty, holy name of Jesus that belongs to each of us, that was given to us to overcome all the works of the devil. Father, cause us to grow and mature in these last days so that we live up to the glorious church that Jesus is coming to receive unto himself. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's all stand together. Thank you so much for being with us. Come on back and be with us tonight for healing school. Prayer schools at 5, healing schools at 6. Have a wonderful day. God bless you. You're dismissed.